This is Rumble, and this is Michael Moore. You know, there are plenty of books and uh, films and columns uh, describing the menace of racism and uh, white supremacy in America, and even more books and films and columns written about race uh, or what is defined as race. This has been going on for uh, for quite some time. In fact. I think it's been part of the conversation since our founding as a country, a founding that was based on the genocide of the native peoples. And then the country was built thanks to the enslavement of uh, black Americans. And right up now and through this past year, the year that began with an eight minute, 46 second murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis uh, police officer, Charles Blow, who I am extremely honored to have on the podcast here today, has done more than just describe what the problem is. In fact, he he says the conversation about race is really um, would be a conversation about fiction. A conversation about racism would be more about fact. And he is a New York Times columnist. And now he has written a book. It's called The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And he lays out a plan, essentially, not only to combat white supremacy, but also to attain political power for black Americans. It's a powerful book. Good luck trying to get a copy of it uh, from Amazon. It's in backlog uh, here, which is a great sign. I'm very happy to have him on Rumble here today. Please welcome Charles Blow. Charles, thank you for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me. So um, are you okay with that? Me saying that if I'm uncomfortable, that's a good thing. And that when you, you know, you're often on CNN, we've only met briefly passing by each other in the green room uh, there. You are not like other commentators. And during this past year, when I've seen you, you have a very quiet way of erupting. I'm mm-hmm. sure in the studio, you could probably hear a pin drop sometimes. It's because you're, you're saying the things that don't get said. You're saying the things that uh, maybe you're, you're not being, you're... sometimes I wonder how you're even on TV, frankly. And I, re- I, and I realized that the Times giving you a Saturday column uh, is very generous of them. Um, but I just think we're in a moment right now. And the fact that you've, you've written the Black Power Manifesto. And my first thought is, where's the Black Power? Uh, because it seems like the country never got it. Black Americans never got it. And now we're all about diversity. And I'm supposed to feel really good about the fact that the majority of Biden's cabinet are what we call people of color. And, you know, I've never said this out loud and maybe I'll edit it out later because I'm, because I'm too afraid to say it, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that term exists, people of color, because I like the idea of including everybody else in the game here of the people who are not part of the white establishment. But I have said, to friends and people, you know, if you were black, would you all of a sudden want everybody calling you a person of color? Black Americans still occupy the lowest rung on our economic ladder. 
are shot without mercy by the police have to go through. Can't they even just have that? So to see the words black power on the cover of your book and and think, yes, yes. And am I have I just had it with all of this sort of what I believe is window dressing when we're not it doesn't seem we're ever going to tackle what is really to me. Uh, as much of a class problem as anything else. And that now we've got white people's attention. We've got them focusing on the idea of race. We're just going to make race look good. Well, I think the the idea of, of grouping uh, people into the browning or into people of color uh, has a tragic flaw in it. It assumes that uh, all people of who are non-white regardless of where they come or where they're from, what their community is like, what their ethnicity is, have a shared set of values. That is simply not true. Uh, and, in, and in addition to that, uh, what I am fighting is, is both ends of the spectrum, white supremacy, but also anti-blackness. It is true from above data and from history uh, that it is very hard to find a modern society in the world where there are differences in the way people look, some lighter, some darker, where the darker ones are not assigned a lower caste. And when people come to this country, they're coming from some country. And almost all of them have the same caste system in their country in some way or another. And so the broadening of America does not solve anti-blackness. And so the grouping falls apart in that way. In addition, in America itself, the term people of color has a kind of checkered history. As uh, W.E. Du Bois writes in The Souls of Black Folk, light-skinned Black people in the North, including immigrants from the Caribbean, use the term people of color to separate themselves from the masses of Black people so that they would not be confused with the poor and the struggling darker skinned blacks. So yes, there are, there are, there are layers to the nature, the problematic nature of using people of color as a catch-all when in fact you're catching together a bunch of people who don't necessarily agree on all the issues, including on the issue of anti-blackness and white supremacy. The, in your book here, um, and and I'll get to this, but I want to just stay with what what we're talking about right now. But you you lay out a a plan essentially uh, for not just how to rhetorically claim black power, but to actually claim real power, economic power, political power, um, et cetera. And a lot of your plan has to do with the importance of the South and Black America um, owning it and embracing it. And even possibly, as you have done, uh, you now, I believe, live in Atlanta, moving moving there. Yes, I do. You are from the South yes. initially. I'm from Louisiana, yes. Correct. So you have moved back to the South. Yes. And I'll get to that in just a few minutes here. I just want to stay with this idea because when I see you on CNN, I just, I think, oh boy, here it goes. Here it goes. And thank God we're going to, we're going to hear something we're not going to want to hear. You're going to say something that. Uh, is going to make white people uncomfortable and maybe even some black people uncomfortable. I don't know why you have not installed the filter that you're supposed to put this out. You know, your black thoughts go through the filter so that they sound okay. 
to the dominant culture and the dominant, you know, uh, people that control and run the country. And then yet here you are. And, you know, I've seen you make the point about, I'm not using your words, I'll just paraphrase it into mind, but that some corporation announces they've hired a black CEO. I'm just going to make this up, but like a corporation like the Hospital Corporation of America installed uh, a black American as the CEO. That in and of itself isn't the victory because if if that CEO still operates with the concept that we need to make a profit off people getting sick and that that will be the determining factor how much help that person gets, then while that's presented to the country as a step forward, you've often made it clear that these are not steps forward and and that we and our blackness, we meaning you and, and those who are black, that blackness is being used um, as some sort of facade, some sort of mask to uh, to not get to what the real problem is. Well, I think there there are a, a couple of uh, issues there. I mean, the, if if uh, just living in the skin, you'll have some difference of experience. That I believe that is true. Society will treat you in a way that is not the same as someone uh, else who lives in a different skin. However, you can also have pretty much the same experiences. I've run into this a lot living in New York, uh, uh, working at the Times, uh, existing in kind of elite media spaces where many of the people, not most of the people, all have pretty much the same experience. They went to the same kinds of prep schools, if not the same exact prep schools. They went to Ivy League colleges, if not the same Ivy League colleges. Um, uh, they kind of summer in the same places for the people who summer. Um, so the experience becomes a common experience. And so uh, so it's kind of wrapped in different skins. Uh, that is not, I think, the, the meaning and spirit of diversity. I think the meaning and spirit of diversity is more varied than that. People, there was a time when, for a very long time, actually, I was, after Bob Herbert uh, left the Times, I was the only black columnist among the op-ed columnists. And people would often say that when they would talk to me at when I'd go talk or something or see me out. And I would say, that is true. I'm the only black columnist, but I'm also the only columnist from the South, the only one who grew up poor, the only one who went to a historically black college and university. Uh, th those things informed my voice and my perspective and worldview as much as anything else. And that is what true diversity is bringing all of me and all the difference of, of any group to the table, not just finding people with different skins who have exactly the same lived experience or 90% of the same lived experience. Well, yes, and your writing acknowledges the layers and the depth of what our problem, not a problem, but our problems are in this country. And you seem to dive into this without fear. You you do have some fear, though, right? Or or not? Have you just like you blew that away a long time ago? Listen, I think human beings have fears around things, but I have fears around things that matter to me more than employment. I have fears around whether or not my children will be happy and fulfilled in their lives. Uh, I have fears around. Uh, as my mother ages, will she do so with grace and ability to live out her life? Well, those are the things that matter to me. The idea that my fears would be around uh, telling the truth, I don't understand that as a fear. Mm -hmm. 
the idea that I should have fear around um, placating people so that they will keep me on television or, or punching out a column, that doesn't make sense to me. I always told myself as a matter of career that I had grown up without anything and I was happy. And if I had to go back to that space where I didn't have much, I would still be happy because I would be true to myself. I appreciate that as a reader and as someone who, um, I don't know why, why when I see you on TV, I just think, oh boy, there's going to be that moment where Charles is going to just speak the awful truth in, I mean, capital A and capital T, and they're just going to have to say, you know, uh, this isn't working. Um, you know, it could happen at the times. It could happen, you know. It, it could always happen. It's just, I repeat this to people as well. I don't own a newspaper. I don't own a television network. I am a columnist by the graces of the people at the New York Times who I appreciate and who have trusted me to do this work. I am on television because someone on television says that, that they want to hear my voice and they've trusted me to do that work. Either of those things could come to an end in, in any, at any moment. And you have to have a life that you are proud of if someone decides that that has come to an end for you. I'm not in control of that. What I am in control of is how honorable I will be. I am in charge of my ethics and my character. When it is all over, will I be happy with what I look back and see? That's what you can control. And that's where you must kind of place uh, uh, your value. All this talk with Biden now as president, um, and he talked about this in his inaugural address of wanting unity and we've got to come together and um, uh, and that we need to, as much as possible, try and find the middle uh, so that all sides are happy as we go forward. And he ran a lot you know, on that. And yet I have to say, since he took that oath, while he has said those things, and yes, he wants to talk to Republicans, and he calls them up on the phone and all this, he seems to be, and get and tell me if I'm wrong, maybe I'm just after four years of Trump, I'm just like, I'll grab at anything that looks good. He seems to be dug in on what he believes are his principles and, and what is what is best, what is truly best for the country. And it's not about everybody holding hands uh, here. It's about doing the right thing. On point after point, and I don't mean just the symbolic things like the majority of the cabinet um, is not white. And I don't consider that just symbolic. I do think that's important. Um, or announcing that they're going to, they still got the printing plates from the Obama administration for the Harriet Tubman $20 bill. They're going to start printing those. All those things this is great, you know, makes people good, feel good to hear that, all that. You know, are we, are we in better shape? Are we going to get some of these things that we hope that we can get, or am I? Have I just drank some of the Kool Aid? Well, last I think that, that you you've raised two questions, and I on the first, I'll take the longer view, which is that American unity has often been horrific for Black people, and so the track record here is not good. Uh, uh, America constantly unified and made compromises around slavery to keep it in place, rather than to dismantle it until they had no choice but to fight over it. America was unified and compromised on on uh, on the presidency, and as a as part of the compromise, removed federal troops from the South during Reconstruction. Everyone knowing full well what would happen after that is exactly what happened: a reign of terror against Black people. 
Mm-hmm. America was unified in, uh, in allowing Jim Crow to live in the South for 60 or 70 years without demanding that it be dismantled or sending federal troops in to change it. Uh, right, America was unified around the idea of allowing mass incarceration to flourish in this country, knowing full well that it was racially disproportionate in addition to the drug war. So when people say unity, we were just uh, just 10 years ago, we were unified in the idea that we didn't want gay people to be married and that it was a it was an affront to the very concept of marriage. Hmm. Unity doesn't always work in the favor of minority groups, because just because the majority group can be united on something does not mean that it is fair or right or just. So I ask people to this day, where do you want me to find common ground with someone who believes that children, it is okay for children to be separated from their families, locked in cages, and that their lawyers can go into court and argue that they don't even need to have the lights out to go to sleep or toothbrushes and toothpaste? Where, where's the unity point for me? We can agree to gris- disagree and love each other if it is about, you know, some budgetary policies, although many of those budgetary policies translate into suffering. Um, we can agree to disagree on our engagement in the world and how we interact with China or, 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 or Russia or North Korea, although some of those uh, underlying issues are also thorny. We cannot... Dis, uh, disagree and love each other if you are denying another person's humanity. That's where my line is drawn. Well, then, in drawing that line, that means there's potentially 74 million other Americans um, that are essentially your enemy. They can call themselves whatever they like. What I'm going to say is if you are okay with that, then you're not okay with me because I'm not okay with you. Mm. What do you, what do we, what, what do people do when they're on the other side, when they're on the side of humanity? But you know where we're at here. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yes, the majority voted for Biden by 7 million votes. And we have the White House and the House and the Senate. And um, some things seem to be heading in the right direction. But still, you, we know what's, what's breathing down our neck here. Yes, it will be incredibly hard to keep control of the Senate. Um, uh, they had the Republicans have uh, half of the Senate seats, but they those Senate seats represent 42 million fewer votes than the half represented by the Democrats. That's because Democrats are are continuously moving into uh, larger, very often coastal states. There's a there's a great migration already happening right now, and that is urbanization in America is largely driven by young college educated white kids moving into cities. Um, uh, That means that we have a slow constitutional crisis creeping up on us already. It is very likely that we will continue to see um, presidents who lose the popular vote and win the Electoral College because the stacking is going in that direction. Um, This is a problem that we're facing. So your solution, or one of your solutions, at least in the book here, um, is uh, is in your case, and but you you encourage other Black Americans to do this, which is to move south. Absolutely, 
at the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority black. Another three within four percentage points of being majority black. Every single Southern state had large percentages of black people in it because 90% of all black people before the Great Migration lived in the South. And so if they were allowed to uh, maintain those um, the, those uh, majorities or, or large percentages and were not forced out of the South in part by white terror, today it is conceivable that you black people could control up to 14 sentences. They would control the region of the South. Uh, they would they could conceivably control as many electoral college votes as California and New York State combined. If they voted over that same period as they vote now and the Voter Rights Act had still been passed, all big ifs, of course, uh, but you wouldn't have had a, pres a Republican president in the last 50 years. And last I checked, there's not a single person on the Supreme Court who was appointed before the last 50 years. So the whole Supreme Court would look different. Mm -hmm. Um so, so the, the the states that have the largest percentage of black citizens are in the South. Exactly. Um, we just saw what happened in Georgia. Yes. Um, that I think has blown everyone's mind, or at least um, people I know seem to be. Because I've said to them too, I, I, if I had said to you seven years ago, oh, you know what's going to happen in 2020? Georgia's going to get rid of their two Republican senators and, and send Democrats. And then, of course, they oh yeah, Southern Democrats. No, no, not Southern Democrats. They're going to send a black man and a Jewish man, right, to, to represent them. And, and I think January fifth, which you know we're going to talk about January sixth for many, many years. Mm -hmm. But I hope that history records that just hours before the before the uh, insurgency, before the attack, um, uh, the South rose up in a profound way and not the way when we say the South rises like it did um, 160 years ago. I'm you know, talking about what happened in that election on January 5th. And I think it should also be noted in that equation that it was the first time in American history that black people were the majority of a coalition that elected a senator singular, let alone two, for any party in the entire history of the Senate. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that fact. Wow. So, so I, you know, my joy in when that happened here last month was um, thinking immediately, who's the, who's the new Georgia? Is it Alabama? Right. Is it Mississippi? Um, is it, you know, just pick any of a number of states and and realizing that the demographics of this country are in the process of changing, that whites will not be the majority after sometime in the 2040s, I believe. Um, there are already, I think, four or five states where whites are the minority. Um, and um, but I don't think any of them, they're not black. The majority isn't black, but the majority is a mixture of black and brown in Texas, in California, in obviously uh, New Mexico and Hawaii um, for reasons that uh, predated what we're talking about. But um, but but here's the problem with that. Yeah. You're moving towards a more balkanized America. We, we, we need to stop talking about the top line number of when America, all 50 states, moves uh, at, in, in aggregate becomes yeah. non-white. Non because right now, um, uh, there are seven states, I think, um, where the 
white population is 90 plus percent of the population. That means mm. that they control 14 sentences. Mm. That's an eighth of the entire Senate. If you move that needle back to 85%, that number doubles mm. the number of states, right? So it doesn't mean just because you have uh, large numbers, if they are balkanized, if they are basically existing in a small number of states, the political influ influence that these heavily, heavily, heavily white states have will still be extraordinary, right? And so what, what the point that I make yeah. is that the seven of the, about seven of the Southwestern states will be majority Hispanic, not majority minority, majority Hispanic. Mm -hmm. uh, Hawaii will continue to be majority Asian, South Pacific Islander. Uh, the area from the Washington, Oregon down into the Rockies will continue to be majority white. The, mm -hmm. All the states to the east of that will be some combination of majority white and majority minority. There's not a single state on that map that is projected to be majority black. Even though those seven states that, that control the 14 senators, there are four times as many black people than, all, than the population of all seven of those states combined. And yet you don't control any senators. You have no real say in the Senate. You have two, I'm sorry, three uh, uh, senator, black senators now, two of whom were, were elected by a coalition that was overwhelmingly white. Not necessarily a problem, but people are most accountable to the people that send them to, into office. The one person in the, in, 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 in the Senate who is black, who is most accountable to black people, just got there. His name is Warnock. Hey, Charles, uh, if you don't mind, I just got to gotta give a shout out here to one of our underwriters for my podcast, Ray Khan uh, is their name, Ray Khan. They were with us last year. They're back with us uh, for another year. Ray Khan was founded by the musician Ray J. They make these uh, really excellent uh, earbuds with great audio quality. So I want to thank them for supporting my podcast. And I'll tell you just, you know, for those of you listening, uh, what I really like about Raycon is that now, after a year of us all spending way too much time uh, looking at a screen, uh, whether it's your phone or your computer or uh, your TV or all three at once, you know, we need a break, you know, and when just, just in general, you need to, you need to rest your eyes. You need to relax. What I like to do is put the earbuds in. These Raycons are really comfortable and just listen, listen to music, listen to a podcast, listen to a book. The best part though, is that Raycon is supporting this podcast. In addition to what I like too, is the great accessibility to people who want a premium earbud, but don't want to pay. These things are half the price of what the other brands are. And so as a cool thing to my listeners here on Rumble, Raycon is offering 15% off all of their products uh, right now for everybody who's a, a listener of Rumble. And the way you get it is by going to buy Raycon, buy Raycon. This is the website, buy, B-U-Y, Raycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N as in Nancy, buyraycon.com slash, don't forget the slash, Rumble. That's it. That's it. Do that. You get 15% off your entire purchase, whatever you order there. It's 15% off when you go to buyraycon.com slash rumble, buyraycon.com slash rumble.
So lay out, lay out the plan here um, for us, because, I mean, you have a very specific idea here in terms of how um, Black Americans um, in the South, especially, uh, can achieve this this kind of political power that you're talking about that doesn't exist right now. Right. So, so the, the, the proposition is very simple, uh, is returning uh, to the South from the, the, the cities and states that Black people migrated to during the Great Migration. And not just, not all of the South. I did not uh, advocate a return to Texas, for instance. That's going to be majority Hispanic. Uh, uh, I do not advocate a re, re, uh, reverse migration to Florida either. But I do for the nine states from Louisiana across I-20 and then up the states up I-95 to Delaware. People don't always consider Delaware to be a Southern state, but the census always has. And Delaware is the eighth blackest state in America. People don't always know that. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these states have 25 to uh, 40% black populations already. The numbers needed to push uh, for dramatic political change and even majority black populations is not that many because you have a running start already. These were the states where you already were and you left. This is just a return. Hmm. And and so are you actually doing, are you encouraging people to do what you've done? Absolutely. So a friend of mine in Detroit is listening to us right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your pitch to leave Detroit and move, not necessarily to Atlanta, move to Birmingham? There are multiple pitches. One is political power. Um, the Black people, I think, are about uh, somewhere around 15% of the state of Michigan. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, a little you, bit more. You, you yeah. can't, you can't, you can't elect a senator on your own. Mm-hmm. They may carve out a, a, a few um, districts for the House of Representatives, which they always do to placate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't elect a senator on your own. When's the last time you had a black governor of the state of Michigan? And oh, when that you, would be never. And, and when do you think that's going to happen for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, do do you think that your majority black cities in the state of Michigan have enough leeway on their own? Because I'll tell you the answer to that. They do not. There are no cities in the Constitution. There are only states and the federal government in the Constitution. As far as the Constitution is concerned and the Supreme Court, by and large, cities exist at the behest of states. Anything a city wants to do can be preempted by the state. If you real want, If you want real power, real say over where you are, you have to take over a state. If you believe that you can do that in Michigan, stay. If you don't, go to somewhere where it is more possible. Number two, there's an economic concern. The black unemployment rate in, in Michigan, I was just looking this up actually uh, in Detroit, but I wasn't looking up all of Michigan, was somewhere in the 30s, I think it was, or high 20s. Mm-hmm. That's an extraordinary number. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary Awful. number. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't exist in the same way in the South. Concentrated poverty, which is a function of city living, particularly northern and western cities that uh, that created it, basically, when black people moved north. They confined you to particular neighborhoods where you could live, and when you tried to move out of them, they were often met with violence. The City, state, and federal governments used infrastructure, actual infrastructure, how they built the roads to war, to wall you off into basically uh, uh, refugee camps to prevent you from walking to one neighborhood to another. They put a giant freeway between mm-hmm. your neighborhood and the next one. 
And then they use things like racial covenants and redlining to prevent you from ever being able to buy property outside of those areas. Now, some of those uh, architectures have fallen, but those neighborhoods, those communities still remain highly concentrated with poverty. And concentrated poverty is a very specific kind of poverty. This is when 40 plus percent of the population in any given area is impoverished. It creates its own negative feedback loop. Those, when you look at the list of, of city or of metropolitan areas with concentrated poverty, there's not a single one of them other than the, the one in Tennessee on that list of the top 10 places with concentrated, of, of highest concentrated poverty. They are all places to which black people migrated during the Great Migration. Hmm. When you look at Forbes' uh, list of places where the black middle class is thriving, half of that list are southern cities. Mm-hmm. When you look at pl- uh, uh, concentrations of Black-owned businesses, the Southeast is the number one ranked region for Black-owned businesses. Mm. So you you take all of that into account. You'll still hear people say, well, the nine out of the, the 10 uh, poorest states in America uh, with highest poverty, poverty rates are in the uh, Southern states. How do you counter that? Well, you look at what Black people are doing, right? I live in New York City. They're... they're uh, two million, no, two point one million black people in New York City. That is almost twice as many black people as live in Mississippi. But you know what about the poverty rate? The poverty rate among black people in New York City is higher than the poverty rate in Mississippi, one of the poorest states mm-hmm. in the union. And why is that? It, it is structural. It is we, it, and also it is uh, it, it's, it's structural and it's hidden. We don't even pay attention to that particular part of the equation. And and the poverty rate is the poverty rate regardless of where you live, right? So if you take that measly amount of money and you live in Mississippi, you might be able to make it. That same amount of money in New York City with with those uh, cost of living prices, you cannot make that. You can't make it. And yet people will still say, oh, but Mississippi's poor. No, you're poor in New York. You live in the shadows of prosperity. So we're talking about Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. What am I missing? So those, how many did I name there? Seven? It's Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Maryland, Delaware. Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, right. Um, So, so... You call this a black power uh, manifesto. Uh, did anybody try to talk you out of putting the words black power on the book, on the book cover? Uh, no. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I did like a double take, like, whoa, I haven't seen that in a while. That, <laughs> feels, that feels, I want to read this. <laughs> but you're not kidding around. I mean, you lay this out fairly clearly in the book. That No, this is not a thought experiment. Some people keep. Right. No, no. Charles's have a, a theory and a thesis. No, this is a plan. It, you know, it, you, 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 black people have to decide whether they want this power or not. Do you want access to state power or not? Everyone else will have access to state power in 35 years. Do you want it? In those 35 years, Hispanics will be nearly double the percentage of black people in this country. For the very first time, there will be more Asians in America than black people. 
you will move to the third uh, minority group from the first one in, in a little over 40 years. Um, everybody is going to have their own policy priorities and they are going to push for them and they should. Who's going to be advocating for you? Who's going to prioritize the, the interests of the third minority group? How do we how do we create or what factory do we find 10 more Stacey Abrams or or 20 more Stacey Abrams? It seems like what she's done and um, I, I don't I don't know her personally, but I um, I'm, I have really marveled at, at her commitment to to this. Um, what are your feelings about her? Well, I think it's fantastic, but I think that there are two things that happened at one time. On the one hand was a, amazing organizing. Uh, a lot of it, you know, they, people have been organizing for decades in the South, but a lot of this new energy was in the last two years. And Stacey was a, you know, superwoman part of that. But the other thing is a longer view, which is the reverse migration of Black people to Georgia. Hmm. Like the area around Atlanta is the number one destination for reverse migration of Black people in America right now. Mm-hmm. Georgia, uh, the the black percentage of black people in Georgia doubles from 1990 to 2020, from 1.7 million to over 3.4 million black people in this state. When last time the state went to a Democrat was 1992 for Bill Clinton, but it wasn't because there was a majority of black people in the part of that coalition because they were only 25 percent of the population. This year, they were 33 percent of that population, and that that is what made the majority of that coalition. Mm. Uh, they the organizers simply had more bodies to organize. Yeah, and even more came out on January fifth on in some counties and areas mm-hmm. than did in the November election, mm-hmm. which was an amazing thing to see. What can white people who are listening to this right now? What can we What can we do to be supportive, if anything? And maybe, maybe we should just shut up and get out of the way. But I'm, um, you know, it just when, when that the next day after the election there on January fifth, before the mm-hmm. before the uh, terrorist attack later in the day on the sixth, my I woke up with this thought, and I said, uh, I, I got a call. You know, you and I have these book agents who you know try to get our books published, mm-hmm. and uh, to call him and tell him that in writing up the contract. For my next book, I want it in the contract that the printing plant that the publisher has to use has to be in the state of Georgia. And and I said to a couple of my uh, film people, you know what, however much of the, the next movie here that we can um, film or produce in Georgia, maybe it's the post-production, maybe it's whatever, we send jobs and dollars. I think they have, I think they have really good tax incentives for film in Georgia. That will actually make my plan easier for the studios <laughs> who will like that. But, but no, but you, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to think of something I, or what, you know, what, that's me, but what can white people do to be supportive? But, but again, maybe we've been in the way by, with our liberal selves trying to, you know, work in coalition, but you know, it doesn't always work out. Right. Well, see, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One, one is the main one is this, um, I've seen so much energy put into trying to fix black people and black communities when in fact what they needed was the removal of the obstacles. Nobody wants handouts. Mm. We don't want mm-hmm. your we don't right. want your pittances and we don't want your pity. Right. We just want you to get out of the way. We want we want right. the, the architectural white supremacy out of the way. And for, as for this particular plan. I have gone to more galas and even more rubber chicken than I can imagine, where people are throwing uh, their uh, uh, tiny 
uh, in the context of their wealth, um, uh, philanthropic dollars at symptoms of the problem without, without ever trying to fix the problem itself. What I say is you need architecture to pull off a mass migration. The first one had a bit of it, actually. You know, the the trains were relatively cheap, and they ran straight up from Mississippi into downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. You could actually, if you if you want to trace back where people came from in the Great Migration, just look at the train tra- train track routes, and they'll tell you that most people in Mississippi in, in Chicago came from New Orleans up through Mississippi, and that way. And the people on the East Coast came up that train track. So there was that infrastructure. Then there was the uh, Urban League, which t- took on as part of its mission to help people to settle into this new environment that they were not used to. Like you, if 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 you want to give, and you want to create architecture that is truly going to be transformative for Black people, help them to migrate if they want. If you want to change a state, if you don't want to ever have to worry about uh, a Senate uh, that is controlled by the minority of America. Um, Republicans who control 42 million fewer votes than Democrats and have half the Senate, change it, the Senate. Help these people migrate. If you don't want to ever have to worry about another uh, Supreme Court justice being confirmed and you hate that, 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 that reality, change it. Help these people migrate. How? How do we help them migrate? It's money. It's money. You know, it, 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 it is, it is, it is, you know, this is, this is the part where the thinker, the, 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 uh, the person with the idea of me, the journalist in me, this is where I hand it over. There are organizers out there, right? There are people who do that work. There are the urban league kinds of, uh, organizations, including the urban league itself. They do that kind of work. I, I model my avid, my uh, positioning here after the publisher of The Child Defender. He didn't have all the architecture. He had the voice and he could give a moral underpinning to the migration. I'm trying to do the same thing for the reverse migration. Mm-hmm. I am not the organizer on the ground. But there are people who are hearing this podcast who are. There are people hearing this podcast who have the finances to help those organizers to make it work. All of those people, if they believe in this, have to jump into gear. To literally help people who live in Flint or Detroit uh, or Chicago or any of these other places up north, literally help them make the move. Literally. Literally. Well, we all know how to do that because I think most people have at some point helped a brother, a sister, a cousin an aunt or an uncle or whatever, move somewhere in the country and everybody knows what that requires. Yes. And and, and also um, there are people who are brilliant people like you, filmmakers, people in advertising, people in marketing. The part of the, the migration in the beginning had marketing because they had people like the black press and they would send back, uh, they would print uh, glowing stories of success stories of people moving to the North. They would also counterpose those with lynchings in the South, right? It was a campaign. This effort is already happening. In in 2018, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 82,000 millennials alone moved back South from cities in the North. Black millennials. Black millennials. Mm -hmm. 
It's already happening. It's been happening for two decades. They just don't have any encouragement. They have no, no, no guiding light. No one is saying, oh, you've done this. Let me help you out. Let me get you acculturated. Let's see how your skills translate. Nothing. They do it. They're doing it on their own. They, they, they show up in Georgia and double the size of this state uh, that gives pe- the organizers more bodies to organize than they would have had two decades ago. And now you have a completely changed pol- political reality in this state. No one helped them at all. No one recruited them. No one encouraged them. They just did it. Imagine what would happen with marketing and advertising and recruitment. You mentioned Delaware as the, when you say that's the eighth largest state for, I I assume you mean per capita. The percentage of black people among the population of people in Delaware, their percentage that are black is the eighth highest. So it's not absolute number of people that Delaware is a tiny state. So I just want to make sure I'm clear about that. So Biden, he picks a black woman as his vice presidential running mate. He, he does these things that he's already, I asked you this before we started talking about something else. How are you feeling about him in his first weeks and what kind of hope uh, do you have that things might get better in Biden Harris era? Well, get better is a relative term. And so you, you're <laughs> always going to say it's going to get better because we were in insane. Yes, of course. Yes. Right? It, it, so, let's all assume it will be better than the last four years. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, 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 Biden ran as a moderate who was um, someone who could bring people together and compromise and work with both sides. So you're going to get that slate of policies more than likely. Right. So if you're looking for radical or uh, uh, transformational change, that is probably not, for by and large, going to be part of the Biden administration. It is a return to normal. It's just that normal wasn't working out so good for a lot of people. So they're not going to be happy about that. Right. Uh, on the representation issue, I think representation absolutely matters. I think uh, uh, little black, brown, Asian people. Uh, children need to see people like them in leadership. Little uh, young girls need to see a woman who is vice president just because they need to be reminded that it is possible. And the only reason that it hasn't happened is that America didn't let it happen. Um, so all of that is real. And in fact, um, those people bring a personal experience to those roles and they will be able to um, uh, push some of that into policy. That is a good thing. But all appointments last, you know, four years, eight years at the most. That is not where real lasting change happens. Real lasting change is legislative or it is judicial. And there's very little that any president can do about that. Uh, Every uh, time Biden sits down with a pen and and signs another executive order, it's better that he does many of these things than not do them. They will help at least while he's in office, but they are not permanent. Anything that he does can be reversed in four years, just like he's reversing a lot of what Trump did, just like Trump reversed a lot of what Barack Obama did. That's the very nature of executive power. It only lasts as long as the executive is in office. So are these things good things? Yes, better do them than not do them. Are they the lasting change that people need in this country who are hurting? Not. And you get that through legislation. You get that through the courts. And you have to figure out what is your best best option for getting those things through the courts or through legislation. I believe 
uh, control of states, which will send senators and increase your chance of getting legislation to your liking, is that option. I believe in making sure you have you help to elect a president who's going to give you the right federal and United uh, Supreme Court justices is the right way to do that because it is permanent. Mm. Um, back when Biden and Bernie were running against each other in the primaries, um, actually, there's a tweet I, I kept of yours from April. I think it was April, probably a couple of months into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can just read this to you, sure. um, you wrote, I will say this, the moderates, that would be the Biden supporters, the moderates argument against Bernie Sanders, their argument that people are not interested in massive structural change. They would rather just have the incremental change has fallen away. COVID-19, you wrote, has ensured that we will experience, whether we like it or not, uh, massive structural change, whether we want it or not. Um, do you still feel that way? Is it, is it, is it, is that, yes. is the, pan, has the pandemic essentially uh, um, uh, sent us into a place where Maybe maybe a lot of people didn't want to be, but that that we will have no choice at this point. Yeah, um, vast yes. vast percentages of the population is now taking government subsidies because now they realize that they need them. Uh, and uh, Congress has voted, I think, on three already, maybe four um, stimulus programs, stimulus bills. They're spending money. People are taking the money. No one's chiding anyone for taking the money. By and large, um, the, the our the structure of our economy has shifted. We don't know which businesses will be will survive this. Which industries will survive this? Uh, it has shaken our concept of what it means to be a worker and where you do that work and wh- how that work is valued. It has changed our uh, our appreciation of schooling and healthcare, uh, be, uh, because we have uh, the, those the schooling has been disrupted and healthcare has be- healthcare has become absolutely essential with four hundred plus thousand people dead. It has changed our view of everything. That doesn't mean that conservative principles are not still there. Liberal principles are not still there and that those people will, those politicians will push for those. But I think it has softened the American uh, hardness around their positions on a lot of things. And that uh, uh, it is up now up to politicians who want real change, structural change, to step into that and be convincing about what their policies would mean for an American future post uh, COVID or with an extended, uh, interminable COVID of some nature. So, so some of the things that Bernie was campaigning for are happening, um, whether they're seen as Bernie ideas or not. Um, the, the idea that the government can be there to help people, all of us, that shot that you're eventually going to get to the vaccine mm-hmm. is a free shot. Yes. It's a socialist shot. And we paid a ridiculous amount of money to uh, 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 medical researchers to get them, get us there. I mean, like... Billions. The, uh, you know, yes, like government is all over all of this. Right. Because, because if we left it up to just the corporations to do this, 
I mean, yes, they would find a way. Obviously, they need to. They they have a bottom line, the profit motive, everything. But um, this is there are so many examples, and you just ticked off a number of them that we need collectively. We need us, we the people, the government that's of and by and for us. You know that government. Uh, it's got to save us in the sense, in the sense that we have to save each other by making that government our government. Uh, do these things that we need, whether it's education, whether it's education alone right there. It's just, uh, it has, this pandemic has, and you've written this, I mean, this is, has exposed these serious structural flaws in the way that we or have organized ourselves and have organized the economy. And we cannot go back. I've seen so many people, I forget about the Bernie argument or whether it's socialism or whatever. So many people realize we cannot go back to the old way. And in the next crisis that happens, we better get our shit together so that, so that when the next thing does happen, we're better able to handle it because, because we have this collective idea of supporting each other and helping each other. You can already see the American people changing by habits, right? So uh, people buying bigger houses, people buying houses that have um, uh, uh, office space in them, they're already counting. I mean, mortgages are not something a flash in a pan. Uh, purchase, right? You don't do that because you think that next year it'll all be over. Right. You you do that because you think that things have changed and you're going to need to reorganize your life to have a school in your house and a workspace in your house and still not step on each other and drive each other crazy. Um, it is going to fundamentally change. And I don't even know, you know, I'm not a futurist. I don't know how all of that will happen, but it accelerated all of the things that we thought we weren't necessarily ready to do. It accelerated streaming movies because we couldn't yeah. get over to a movie. Right. And, and then now the idea of like sitting at home in bed and watching a new movie doesn't seem strange at all. Right. Well, I, I still want people to go to the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I know what you mean, though. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> um, I, I'm grateful for these streaming services. I've seen some great movies during this time, but um, you're right. Things we aren't going to go back to a lot of the old ways other than we will go back to the movie theater. But, you know, but I want to go to the Barclays Center and I want to I want to watch basketball and I want in person, not just but on you, TV. But do you know, like, I, I, you know, we've been in this a year plus, I guess about a year even at this point. And I cannot imagine being at a basketball game yet. Mm. Like, I, I can't get my head around Barclays, the Barclays Center which is not, was not too far from my house in Brooklyn and I could walk there, but you know, uh, are I, you finding I, that you don't miss it? I, well, I think I miss, I, but it's, it's like I've, my mind has somehow come to accept a new reality after fighting it and being upset about it and angry about it for a long time. I mean, listen, <laughs> last year was my 50th birthday. I was supposed to do like a big thing and you know, there's nothing. So I just had to like, <laughs> like just change my expectations of the world and of life, change uh, what uh, recenter what I felt was important, really important things. Um, and congregation became less important and less possible. 
And I think you, as human beings, we're just in, infinitely adaptable and that we're slowly adapting to a reality of less congregation. Hmm. Is that good? I, I don't know what the good or bad of it. I think people need to be around other human beings. I yeah, think that's that human, part of it. Yeah, you agree factor. we need that. Yeah, right. But I just don't know. We do. Know, we need to congregate in so with fifteen thousand others. Yeah, we got so used to scale. <laughs> we got so yeah. used to yeah, ten, yeah. fifteen thousand giant festivals, and you know we were jumping around in each other's faces. You know, I'm. It's hard for me to. Sometimes hard for me to even remember that that was a thing, and then like trying to predict when that would ever feel like the right thing to do again. Mm. What about releasing a book during the pandemic? Oh, it's very hard. <laughs> yeah. Do you wish that there was a book tour that you could visit? Well, I, just, yeah, I do just because you get to interact with people uh, person to person. And um, uh, a lot of them are readers of the book and you can just hear from them in person when after every book event you end up signing books or something and so you just get to hear from actual people who read the book and you understand the impact that your book makes um so you don't get that i mean all of my press i'm doing from this creative studio in my living room that's where i am now um and so all the press is done here and you would think that that would be so much easier you don't have to travel and I guess the travel part is good, but you end up doing every single thing yourself. <laughs> so you like, I think your listeners probably don't understand it. Like there's a, there's a whole apparatus around a book tour. And sometimes your publicist is with you and there's always a, a, a helper in whatever city you're in and people make sure you have food and all. well, now you are, that's you. <laughs> so <laughs> so right. you're like, you know, from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed, I am doing all of that. So my house is a mess because I just haven't, I just can't do all of that at once. But, you know, the, um, one person once told me, another author told me, the only thing worse than a book tour is not having a book tour. So mm. you can't really complain you get to do a book tour. Right. Uh, as, when it comes to books, too, I mean, I like I still like going to the bookstore. I haven't been to one in a year, but I I, I love the tactile feel of it. I like I, I when I read books, I read the actual book. Mm -hmm. I don't um, I mean. I, uh, I'm not against, uh, you know, Kindle and these other things, but I mean, I don't know. Are, have you made that switch? Do you read I, your books I, on the I, screen? You know, I very often I will buy both. Uh, I'm a collector. So I like to, you know, I don't know. There's something about, it's like a bottle cap wine, uh, 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 cork kind of a, uh, compulsion that I like to see the books that I read. So I like to have them if I want to go back to them and see all of them on the bookshelf. But, you know, there is a convenience, particularly for my work, for highlighting things and forwarding things to myself or to others that I can do electronically, that it just is impossible to do in a book. So I like the convenience of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, in, and in the case, as I mentioned at the beginning on my, my knock at uh, Amazon here, that uh, I had ordered your book, I don't know, three weeks ago. Um, and it, it still hadn't arrived and they kept sending me these things. It's delayed and it's, there's, they were selling so many of them, which of course is great news for you. And then, but they said, of course, as you know, if you are on Amazon, you can start reading it right now on Kindle. <laughs> so I did, but it was like, yeah, and you know, I, I, it's fine. I mean, I, obviously I, I live my life on screens. Um, but, uh, but, um, 
I, I wanted to hold the book. And then now they've sent me a thing saying, you know, we, we can just send you the refund because it's been so long. And it's like, no, I want the book, send the book. <laughs> so now, of course, when they hear this, you know, I'm, I assume it'll be gift wrapped uh, tomorrow morning uh, <laughs> down on the, the, the main floor of this, uh, this apartment building. But um, no, it's, it, uh, I, I think it, we, we were, we we're just about out of time here. I, I, um, I have, I just was, you know, I'm, I'm not a black person who's going to move to the South and, uh, but uh, you wrote, I think you wrote this. I, I think you want, everybody to read this book because there there is a plan here it's not just rhetoric uh there's there's like here's how we can attain power yeah i I wrote wrote it mostly for young black people who would be the movers but also anyone who would under want need to understand why these people would make that choice right well and from in my case i just started thinking about what can i do to pitch in you know Mm -hmm. um and not and i agree with you not with charity and um uh, something that will make, you know, me and other, you know, white people, oh, we just feel so much better because we, you know, wrote a check or whatever. No, it's like, I started thinking, damn it, I'm going to, the next book's being printed. Let's find out where the printing plants are in Georgia. Let's help, let's help create jobs or do something right, that exactly. it will, will, will give to the, to the economy that hopefully is and will be run, uh, by the black citizens of Georgia. And, um, but at the same time, you've just given me an idea here during this podcast about Michigan. And yes, it's at least 15%. Uh, these are these are large black cities that are the spine of Michigan. Uh, Detroit, Pontiac, Flint, Saginaw, um, even 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 a, a white town like Grand Rapids has had a black mayor because there's such a growing black population, a uh, mm-hmm. middle class black population in Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. So th- it's so I start to think, well, what can I do in in my home state to to help the situation because I'm, I'm tired of being a witness to the squalor. I'm tired of the, how they, they knew they could get away with poisoning the people in Flint because it was a majority black city because nobody there had any power. Nobody in black Flint ever wrote a a campaign check to, to a politician so they could just go to hell with it. You know, what are we, what, how's this going to hurt us? Exactly. And, um, so. And let let me just leave you with this. Yeah. Yeah which was, there will be a trade-off, uh, 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 draining of that black leverage power from states like Michigan to black uh, full power in states in the South. But if Hillary Clinton had simply won the majority, black, uh, the uh, largely black states in the South that she won in the primaries, she could have lost every single one of the Midwestern uh, battleground states and she would still have been president she could have lost michigan wisconsin pennsylvania lost, uh, pennsylvania yeah she would still have been president she would have yeah would have actually won the electoral college yes um well this i love this plan and uh and georgia gave us a a slice of the future she gave, they gave us proof in concept proof in concept has been established uh and nobody um should say that this is a crazy idea because we just saw it happen. So um, I will take that optimism. I will thank you for this book, The Devil You Know, uh, a Black Power Manifesto. I love manifestos. Yeah, thank this, you. Is so, this is so good. I thank you for writing it. Uh, uh, please keep being on uh, CNN. Um, and um, I look forward to your column. 
in the Times. I encourage everyone to read it if if you're just becoming familiar with Charles Blow. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a good reason to go on to the and, and get some cheap version of the New York Times that you can afford and uh, and read his column. And um, so, thank you for all of that. Thank thank you, thank, so thank you for the discomfort. All right, thank um, you. I, I I really appreciate it, and uh, and um, I hope we get to talk again sometime. Absolutely. All right, Charles. Take care. All right. right. Bye bye. And uh, wow, that was great. And I again encourage you to uh, pick up a copy of this book or get it online. Maybe not from Amazon. They're kind of for whatever reason they're running out. But um, uh, the devil, you know, a black power manifesto. Uh, certainly my uh, book of the month here. If I had a book club. Uh, this this would be it. I'd want you all to read this. Um, thank you, uh, everybody, for listening uh, to Rumble today. Our executive producer is Basil Hamden. Our editor and, and uh, sound engineer is Nick Quaz. Uh, we'll be back soon, very soon. There's a lot going on uh, right now, and uh, we'll we'll talk then. This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Better live in his world than deal with.